Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you are in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Hey listeners, it's Will here. Our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. If you've ever listened to our show, then you know that the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. So if you suspect technology is your weak link, then book a call with us to see where we can help maximize your company's IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. Today's guest is Mark Lucas. He is the founder of Rima Real Estate Mergers and Acquisitions Co., a boutique M&A consulting company that helps brokers find their exit strategy and begin a new chapter of their lives. Mark is a serial entrepreneur who has owned multiple businesses throughout his career. Working mostly in a career with real estate industry, Mark has been a witness to many problems real estate companies face and each time was able to find a solution, giving agents, brokers, owners a way to create and increase profits, reduce expenses, or decide it might be time to change directions altogether. Mark enjoys living in Florida and spending as much time as possible at the beach and spends time with his co-founder and inspiration wife, kids, and grandkids. Uh, also, big Porsche guy, which Will didn't know yet, and a snorkeler. So uh, with all that said, uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. appreciate you having me. You know, I didn't know that you were a Porsche guy. Uh, I now, you have now found a way to my heart. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big car guy, so we can talk later about that. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you about my first 930. <laughs> so, so before before we completely get derailed i when i read that i was like oh mna uh runs the business entrepreneur and porsche oh yeah like well you guys are met, met in heaven I, I guess is what that is so uh yeah but w- i said a lot of stuff that that was meaningful but you tell us the real origin story tell us how you got into doing what you're doing and tell us about rima yeah so i i affectionately tell everybody i, I started my first company i was eight uh, this would have been the 1980s. I hate to date myself like that, but I, I had a little yard clipping service. I had three customers. I made $5 a week for each one, which in the 80s, like when you're eight, is a lot of money. I was the only one that could go to the arcade and just spend days there. But anyway, <laughs> progressed through college and and started another couple companies and got those large and sold them off. But anyway, eventually after a number of years, I, I had met a lot of people, let's call it, in the real estate industry, particularly brokers across the country, with one of my previous companies. And if you know, for the for your listeners who know anything about the real estate industry, particularly brokers, you know, it's, it's always the same story. It's you know, it's like a Louis L'Amour book. You know, insert problem here based on brokers. So you know, it's always the the agents are driving me crazy. It's like you know, nailing jello to the wall or herding cats. And I didn't have a lot of way to help them, but a number of years went by and. Uh, I by then had met some people who had some pretty deep pockets. And so I, I met a broker and he kind of had the same story. And I said, well, let me see what I can do to help you out. So anyway, we uh, chatted and he had a very complex business model. He had seven different franchises and a title company. And it was just about as about as an improbable first start into the world of, of my own M&A company that you could possibly imagine. And But it took about a year or so, but we got him sold and he was happy. He's out cruising to this day with his with his wife and his grandchildren on those big, big cruise lines. And that's kind of his was his goal. Uh, anyway, it worked out well. And, and what came out of that really was two things. One is I realized that there are no M&A companies that really exist that are just in the real estate space. This was sort of uncharted territory. Because M&A companies are a dime a dozen. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting one, but they don't have that specialty focus. And real estate world's a very, a very unique industry. And the other thing that came out of it was that the M&A space is damn near screwed up as the as the real estate space. So as an <laughs> entrepreneur, this is man, this is like catnip. I was just in hog heaven. So I took me a little while to put all the pieces together. But over my career, I had met a huge amount of incredibly talented people. So I started putting everybody together and putting all the processes together and figuring out how to make this work in the right way. And luckily, I had quite a bit of M&A experience, not specifically in real estate, but at least M&A experience. I knew that 
I knew all the fundamental cores and how to do evaluation and all that good stuff. And, you know, here we are some years later, we've got, what do we have, 70, 71 projects right now that we're working on and all over the country. We just really launched into Canada pretty heavily. And, and so we seem to have found something for, for better or worse. We, we fill the void, which is what every entrepreneur looks for. And, and, you know, I'm having a great time and that's all that matters when it's all said and done. You, you got to get up and be smiling when you, you know, when you, when you get into the <laughs> office, if you're not smiling, get out because it's, it's a lousy life. Well, so. you, you hit the jackpot with the golden trifecta of cars, cats, and cash. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I can't have cats. My wife's allergic. I like dogs. But anyway, I, I get your point. Yeah. Animals. How about that? <laughs> All right. That's, um, yeah, you, you, again, you and Will are, are going to just like now be best friends uh, from Chicago to Florida for sure. Uh, so we, when we think about scaling a business and, and obviously you've done this a bunch and, and are doing that currently uh, with Rima, we think people, process and technology. Those are the three pillars that grow any business. That's how you scale. That's how you get real traction on something. Uh, sure. w- when we put those three pillars in front of you, wh- which is the one like, you know, rank them, give us the ranking of them. We know they're all important, but what's the ranking people, yeah. process, technology? Probably if I, well, that's a tougher question. It may seem probably the people first. And then I'll start with that very quickly. This M&A space is still a relationship game. As much as we could all love to, you know, say that we, you know, the Zoom calls are great, but in the end, you know, when you're talking about selling somebody's baby in some sense, I mean, these are brokers who've been in the industry for decades in some cases, you know, multiple decades. And, you know, they've built these companies from scratch in, in most cases. That's a hard thing for them to let go of. And if you don't have that just innate relationship with them, well, why would they trust you? You know, if you can't speak their language, for example, this is why we specialize in real estate, because all of my people have a real estate background. We know how to talk to a broker and really understand what they've gone through and where they want to go. Okay, so people first. Strangely enough, normally I would probably put process next, and and I'm going to probably hedge my bet just a little bit, and I'm going to slip over to tech, only because what we created was a, a real way to do a valuation on a brokerage. We do what's called a rapid valuation model. And essentially, I can take some very easy pieces of information and, and I can quite quickly in say less than a few hours or maybe even a few minutes, depending on the simplicity of the model. But let's say less than one day, I can at least get you 80 to 85% of the way to what your valuation will probably be. Now we have, you know, Again, a little bit of flexibility here, because until you do a deep dive into the books and really get to know it, you know, you could be off a little bit. But as close as we are, most most valuations take days or weeks and will cost companies tens of thousands of dollars to do. We do ours in less than a day. There's times I've done it literally on a Zoom call and shown the broker precisely, well, not precisely, but very closely what they're worth in less than 10 minutes. So that's just something that's entirely different. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And we do it for free. Jump on a call with any one of my people and they'll just go blink, blink, blink right on the screen, put it right in front of you. And it's a done deal. Okay. So the technology, that piece has never existed before. So we really sort of changed the rules of the game, if you will, uh, by, by adding that component. And then of course, finally the process. Now, you know, M&A in some sense is what is, is sort of static in, in the process systems. In other words, you've got to have a model, you know, you've got to have a valuation of the company. You got to know what the company is and where it's going. If it's going to try and continue, you got to know who buys it. And then you just got to work the steps. So the, the process itself is fairly consistent, even across industries. But we've, we've refined it down now to almost, you know, like going to the microwave and putting a frozen burrito in there. It's just like, it's pretty quick and simple. So that's sort of our big talking point when we talk to brokers is most, most, of the time you know a lot of the other guys will do they tend to talk in terms of months to get a a, a, an acquisition or a merger done we tend to talk in terms of weeks because we again we're a boutique we the only thing we work in is is the real estate space you know mortgage brokerage and title that's it you got a dog grooming service i can't help you i wouldn't even know where to begin and don't want to even try so uh yeah that's that's you know that's where we're at I'll make sure I, I remember that. I have a client that's in the dog grooming business. Uh, so uh, I will make sure not to say, hey, Not to call me. Don't, yeah, sorry. Don't call Mark. He's not your guy. Don't call Mark um, on that one. There's definitely a true definition here of there's riches and niches. So yeah. like you are, you definitely found something, which is awesome. 
and just hearing you look i've seen and gone through the MA process you are exactly right it's long it's tedious and there's a lot of emotion behind oh, it yeah. <laughs> uh and the fact that you were able to shorten it out like by a lot i cannot tell you how impressive that is like the fact that you can get with pretty close you know, w- within a Zoom call, let alone within a day, that's super impressive. Yeah, I don't know if anyone yeah. else has actually been able to do that, uh, and especially h- how like small to large have you like worked with as far as brokers, etc. Sure, no, we've yeah, we've done almost every size you can think of. So you know, we, and again, this is going to be a bit of a, uh, a again, it's a little trickier question. Is you have to remember, you know, the vast majority, seventy five percent or something, are brokerages that have you know, very small amount of agents, you know, 10, maybe 15 agents, something like that. So that's going to be the bulk load of our work. But we've worked with companies that are worth only a few hundred thousand dollars, say 200,000 or maybe 250,000, something like that, all the way up to 65, 70 million. And our model, the way we built it, it really doesn't make a difference to me. As long as I have a good P&L and, you know, a string of P&Ls to find my average, my, our, our rapid valuation system will pretty much take care of any size. Now, the big thing is right now, particularly in this industry, is the big companies, you know, the 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 million dollar companies. It's not so much, not so much that they can't be sold. It's just our pool of, of buyers gets pretty small at that point. So those are going to take some more time. They're going to take some time to just find the right connection, find the right culture uh, that, that can do that. But for anybody smaller, let's say, you know, 10 million or less or something like that, 5 million or less. Yeah, again, we're talking weeks, not you know, not a half a year or something like that. You know, you probably narrow it down to 90 days, maybe 120 days, something like that. Do you see that some of these bigger entities, you need to go outside of the uh, real estate space and go into like more private equity or something like that to get more buyers? Or is it like, no, like we want, we want one to one, we want a real estate to take a real estate. Like this, well, ironically, that is an excellent question. And I think the best way I can think to say it would be like this. If it's a brokerage, and I'll just use a brokerage as an example, I would much rather sell them to another brokerage and even a brokerage within a given model. So, for example, uh, we're working with a client that is 100 percent model. So, in other words, the agents keep 100 percent of their commissions and they pay desk fees. And there's little you know, weird nuances to that particular style of brokerage. If I put them in, in let's say I could, that broker comes to me and says, hey, I want to sell my company, great. And then I put them in front of a, a bro- brokerage company or a brokerage brand, maybe, that was an 80-20 that had all kinds of other fees. The agents would flock. There'd be nothing left. It'd be a hollow shell. So it's not just, there, there's a lot of nuance to what we do. Not thinking about how do we put the right seller with the right buyer in, in a variety of spaces and then you sort of narrow that down to maybe three or four. Now, we're lucky. I uh, the first couple of years that when I first started the company, uh, again because of my previous you know experience, if you look at say the top twenty or twenty five brands, and I'm talking brands, not even individual large brokers, just the brands themselves. We work with with twenty of the top twenty five. So you know it doesn't matter whether you're you know say Remax or Fathom or or uh, you know PT. I mean, I name them all. Chances are we work with them, and then we work with a lot of the, even this what I would call the second tier brands. So you know the, I mean, maybe not maybe not second tiers, or maybe not the best way to put that, but maybe they're they're not the the Fortune five hundred billion dollar plus companies. These are you know maybe their collective worth is a you know few hundred million or something like that. But you just got to know how to put the right pieces together, and that's what will keep everybody happy, and that's what makes a successful um, transaction. No, that's 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 smart. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's going on to people. So you've been able to grow internally fairly quickly. Oh. How how did that go? Like you know, thinking three years, not fifteen people. Yeah, uh, doing seventy one deals. Now you're in Canada. I mean, like there's a lot of scale that you guys are doing internally. Uh, yeah. So t- t- take us through that. Yeah, that one was actually, in some sense, was was almost the easiest part of it. It was not. Again, this is a matter of just knowing the right people. So for example, my COO, Scott, he came from EXP. He was their CTO for a while. Julia, my my CMO, she's got uh, she's worked for a variety of the brands as their marketing directors. 
So, you know, I was fortunate. Well, maybe not. Yeah, I think fortunate is the right word. I was fortunate <laughs> that I knew the right people and they happened to be available at that moment when I called them up and said, hey, I've got this idea. I think this has got some real legs. And they went, we see the vision. All right, we're willing to come on with you and see what we can do. It could have all been backwards if the timing hadn't been quite right, or it could have all been backwards if I just didn't know quite the right people. And then installing advisors, you know, which is what we call our people who got really in the field, let's call it, and work with the individual brokerages on a local level. You know, again, all of them have real estate experience, whether they were brokers or maybe they're in the mortgage or title industry or whatever. But again, just knowing those people from around the country and all of them being trustworthy and smart and, and really understand the industry, it, it was, and not all of them are here still. I mean, at one point I was up to, I think, 20 or 21 employees, but people have to move on sometimes. I get it. That's that's just the nature of the game. But the people that I that finally settled into their spaces and, and really, you know, hunkered down and want to help people, I mean, that's the biggest thing with this. It, you know, brokers can see a bullshit artist coming a mile away. If you, you can talk the talk, but you can, you know, you it only lasts you for so long before, you know, everyone goes, hey, really, is this really what you're here for? You know, that sort of thing. And then it all just gets blown away. So I right people, you know, it was good, good choices and right timing. Uh, timing is, uh, I, I say this in life, like timing is everything. There's just yeah. stages of our lives, right, that we we eventually get to, is, is, at least that's how I've experienced it. That is like, yeah, yeah that, that would have been great five years ago, but there was no reality that that would have taken any roots at all. Right. Like, that's just yeah. not a chance. Yeah, so you got these great people uh, that you you were fortunate enough that at the same time they were all like ready ready to do this with you. Uh, so how do you create that culture, right? Like how do you how do you keep that going? Uh, and you know, as a company grows quickly like that, it can be difficult. And if people aren't all in the same place and like they're coming from you know similar backgrounds, but can be very different uh, in, oh, in yeah. their own rights. How do you, how do you kind of keep that uh, energy and culture going? Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, what I bring to the table in some sense. I mean, you know, again, this isn't my first rodeo, so I, I understand. I, 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 we've talked about, you know, in some sense, I, I've shared this with a lot of people at a lot of times, but, you know, I've been invited to weddings and I've been, I, I really do like the people I work with. And that's, I, I, let's put it this way. I wouldn't necessarily want to work with someone who I just didn't enjoy being around. And, and I've got a very thick skin, so my, my people harass me incessantly, and I'm totally fine with that. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's all just done in good fun. And if I was somehow thin-skinned, and if I was bringing all this sort of negative energy and stress and everything else, then that filters down. But as the owner, it's my job to keep everybody lifted up and to keep everybody laughing and, you know, the whole thing. So a couple of my people live down here in Florida, and so we'll go have drinks sometimes or whatever. And, you know, those are the things that the owner is supposed to do. And being the owners, that probably you know, for for everybody who's who's been a business owner, they understand there's a lot of stress, but you got to keep everybody motivated and going, and you know, give them and be and be honest with them. If the things are going well, then relay that information. If something doesn't go well, it's okay to tell them that too. It's kind of like being married in some sense. You know, you you got to have the good with the bad. Nothing in life is ever perfect. And it's okay that the employees know that too. You know, if you're going to go bankrupt, maybe that's something you want to figure out how to say correctly. But <laughs> by and large, we lose a contract or something happens. Okay, those things happen. But, you know, if you if you try and hide things, the employees will pick up on it. It drags the whole company down. So you've got to just get in there and be honest. And when things are going well, when things – Point out people, you know, when things are going well for them, for example. You know, little things like that make a huge difference. It's not about the money. That money is a byproduct of being happy. You know, if people are pissed off all the time, the money shrinks up because everybody can see it. Mm -hmm. When you've got happy employees, the money just follows. And it's that simple. I, I learned that years ago and I still believe it to this day. No, that's good advice. I think uh, in, since I've been with Spot, I think Will now has then been married twice to me and to Kasha. So that, that <laughs> probably makes sense. I was sense. like, wow, that was going to be a weird story there for a moment. But I was like, okay, now I, I see where he's headed with this. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. On the other side, so not internally, but when we think of externally, deals uh, when you're selling somebody's baby, yeah. there's a lot of ego that goes with that. There's a lot of emotions that go with that. Uh are you playing a uh, therapist uh, or, you know, oh. are you playing psychiatrist uh, all day, every day, or your, your people yeah. doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I told all my people when we started this and I got my first couple deals done before I really started bringing people on, you know, 
we're, we're part, we're, you know, we're part educator, part therapist and part priest, you know, because, and that's literally our jobs. And so the educational side of it's pretty simple. You have to describe what an M&A situation is like. You have to keep them updated all the time as to what's happening, the little nuances, the, the 8 million questions that we're going to get asked that seem so irrelevant, but the buyer wants to know for whatever reason. You know, the therapist is just keeping them off the ledge. I mean, if that's sending them a bottle of bourbon or, you know, whatever that looks like, you just, yeah, you, there are so many times in this, in this deal making that you just, you know, they'll call you weekends. They'll call you on the, like, is everything going okay? Or is everything cool? Yeah, everything's fine. Here, you know, let me lay this out for you. Again, just be honest and be transparent because they'll sense if you're starting to, you know, try and, you know, massage the information or whatever. And as far as the priest, look, that's simple. I mean, anybody who sells their company is just going, please let me make something. Anything would be great, you know, type of thing. And, you know, that's where we're here to work them through those steps, work them through that whole thing, whether it takes two weeks or two months or, you know, like I said, the first one was a year for me. So, you know, it's that's just part of the, I, I it's it seems funny to me that I, I say this so many times, but. You know, you cannot believe how many times on a Friday night at 11 o'clock, my cell phone will go off and and it's somebody going, is everything still OK? Like, did we get that information over to somebody? And it's like, it's 11. We got it over there at five or three or whatever. It's like, I sent you a text. Oh, I know I'm just making sure it's like, it's all good. Everything's cool. Yeah, we're good. I'll talk to you Monday morning or you can call me on the weekend or whatever. That's just part of the job. It's part of the job. I love your candor around that. I mean, be, running a business, owning a business. Uh, being an entrepreneur, that is, that's a lifestyle. That is not just a job, right? Uh, is definitely a lifestyle. So I appreciate you saying that. You talked about technology being kind of, you know, sort of second most important. How are you leveraging technology in your business to help build that scale? Well, me personally, not at all, but <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm old. I'm like, I, I hit the wall. I don't care anymore. No, look, I mean, my my marketing team, for example, you know, they use some of those AI programs to to, to generate and, and get help. Uh, again, building an entire technology platform that just didn't exist from the ground level up was, was a huge undertaking. You know, we, we reaped the rewards for all of that time and energy and money spent, but that was a huge undertaking. A lot of little things like I, I hired a guy who was an, an incredible data, what do they call it, data development, something, something anyway. And he literally built a, a software program from scratch that went out and scoured the Internet and found me every single broker that exists on the planet. And then we started narrowing it down. So we have one of the most extensive databases of real estate brokers in almost the world, but certainly in America and Canada. But he had to write some software from scratch to even have that happen. So, you know, we're pretty heavily invested in tech, maybe not some of the newest tech that's come down the line. You know, again, we had to build a lot of ours from scratch. So if you look at more of the what I'll call off the shelf type of tech, you know, the chat, chat GPT and and that my marketing team uses that a little bit. But the rest of it, we had to custom build. So that was that was a challenge in the beginning. But again, it's it's reaped its reward since then. Talk to me a little bit about. Like specifically the technology developed, the rapid evaluation modeler. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I'm sure that had iterations and oh, where are you at yeah. with it right now? <laughs> it's a never ending battle. No, no. Yeah, that one took a lot of things. It's, it's because inevitably several things happen all at once. I mean, again, if you're just plugging in, let's say, a, you know, a, a standard P&L, right? In evaluation model, that's relatively simple. Okay, you know they've they've earned X, they've spent Y, they've got some chargebacks, and you get to some inevitable number, whatever that looks like, and then you throw a multiplier on it. That's all well and good. In the real estate space, there are a lot of very unique variables. So the biggest one I tell people is, for example, and you you know I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but it's called the Pareto principle or the Pareto effect, or you know a lot of different words for it. But so two things are true at once. You have you know, 20% of your agents doing 80% of your work, right? That's just the Pareto model. Okay. But you also have to remember is that real estate agents are independent contractors. They can come and go anytime they want. So brokers have to really factor that kind of thing in. And we have to factor it in when we're doing our, our, our valuation, because, okay, if, if so let's say 20% of your agents and you've only got, let's say 50 agents or something, well, if you lose a certain percentage, well, they also happen to be the ones that 
that are, are your biggest producers, well, that's going to rapidly change what your valuation model looks like. And so there's a lot of little small variables that don't exist in other industries. I mean, if you're selling, you know, ball bearings and one of your guys leaves, all right, you go hire another guy, you train him how to use the machine, and you're probably not that far off from where you were before. Brokerages are an entirely different beast. You know, LOs in the in in the mortgage space are an entirely different beast. These are people that have a very unique skill set. And if you lose a percentage of them, that's a big deal. And so our model went through a lot of iterations to try and compensate for that. And that's just one, but I mean, you know, there was probably four or five others that we had to sort of, you know, figure out how do we how do we assign a value to that, right? It's okay, fine. So you've got X amount of agents and they're worth some dollar value in the real world. Well, our model had to go in and try to figure out what that looks like. And it took a long time to get it where it was close to what the real world seemed to be telling us. And that was a big deal. I mean, sounds like a lot of time has been spent and you're still, sounds like you're tweaking. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, pretty pretty con uh, consistently or continually. So that way it stays accurate. How, if you don't mind me asking, how accurate would you say kind of your rapid evaluation modeler is? It's as accurate as probably what people give me. So if I'm looking at an actual PL, I could probably get it within 95%, something like that. And we've sold, we've had enough deals go through now that I'm pretty confident saying that, you know, maybe 93% or something along those lines. If some broker's just on the phone with me or on a Zoom call and they're just throwing numbers out there, and I don't know for sure that they're the you know 100 percent accurate, then it's only as good as the numbers I toss into it. But for for sake of argument, if I'm looking at a PL and I've got all the you know, the complete sheet, I can get pretty damn close. And then it's more just a multiplier after that because the multipliers are changing. We just released the new multipliers today for the for this month, you know, based on all the statistical models that we can come up with. And, you know, those will change again next month, you know, just based on the market itself. Part of the software as well, uh, the multiplier? No, those are, yeah, that's one that market? I go in. Yeah, so the multipliers change a, a little too frequently. So what we've done is we actually have about six or seven sources that we sort of compile a lot of information to try and come up with a single number in a given state. So, you know, for example, if you're in Washington state or something like that, you know, you're going to have a different valuation based on the state. Now, even within Washington, Seattle is going to be different than Spokane and, you know, Walla Walla is going to be different than both. So, but at least it gives us a pretty good idea of what a state's going to be. So, you know, again, I'll use Washington. Seattle's getting pretty beat up right now. I think they're one, one, nine, one, one, eight, five, something like that. Spokane's probably still in the two, three, two, four range, um, maybe two, two, three, five. So, you know, again, we've got all these internally, we have all the numbers for all the major cities and, and for at least, you know, condensed chunks of, of particular states. But for the, for the rapid valuation, we'll typically just use a sort of a little broader based, you know, valuation number. Right. Cause you got things like addbacks, you know, or what, what the industry calls adjusted EBITDA, right? Exactly. These are, these are the uh, luxuries of uh, being an owner and the write-offs. <laughs> So <laughs> I don't know how luxury is it, how luxurious it is, but all right, sure, go ahead. <laughs> well, depending on how successful you've been and and you're look and if you're looking to sell, but I yeah. Hey everybody, Justin here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As you know, Will and I are business nerds and love talking to leaders who've scaled their businesses using people, process, and technology. If that's something that gets you all jazzed up too, then do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the little bell so you get notified every time we drop a sweet new episode. And if you know somebody who'd be an awesome guest on the show, send them our way. Just go to buildandscale.net slash guest. Now, back to the episode. You talked a little bit about AI. So ChatGPT, um, do, you use, do you guys leverage AI anywhere else? No, not maybe as much as we should. I know, you know, we've, we've sort of talked about how to incorporate a, a more off-the-shelf type of AI to, again, you know, utilizing, you know, sort of our compiler to, to get our monthly valuations or four or five weeks we do it. And I, you know, I know in earlier conversations with people, I've, they've said, no, it'll do it like we can. I, I don't know. That's, there's, that's a little bit of, what would we say? That is a little bit of, of 
also a skill of just being able to look at the market for as long as my people have, myself included, and going, yeah, okay, the number isn't always just what the number is. There's some other variables that are they're more ancillary, that aren't just as easy as here's what the sales data is for here and we're going to generate a number. There's a little bit of you know, a little bit of nuance to that that gets pretty tough. But hopefully that's something in the near future we can begin to leverage a little better and uh, maybe come up with some more accurate numbers than we even already have. Yeah, get get that to ninety nine percent or something, you know, something insane, like something that I I yeah, and then you just don't have to do anything. You just kick your feet back and, and relax. Right? Is that how it works? No, I'm kidding. If only it was that simple. <laughs> so you obviously have process that's built, right? We, uh, you know, you you said, hey, I was yeah, the technology process. You kind of him and Han back on that in the beginning. Uh, so you have an internal process for for this. Uh, how how have you? built this proven process like what what is what what does that look like uh you know for when you either onboard a new person that's going to have to yeah. use it and how do you you know manage through it and all those kind of things well the the process let's, let's start with the external process because that one's a little more interesting i think for a lot of people the brokers in particular which is so you know we'll we'll identify a broker that maybe wants to sell whether that's coming from you know maybe somebody gave us their name or we sent out a, an email and they responded you know whatever there's a lot of different ways that starts but that process begins but once we've identified that target, then it's getting that relationship set up. It's, you know, an advisor in their local geographic area. And this is why I have, you know, advisors all across the country, because we try and keep people geographically as close as possible. Again, this is a relationship industry. This is not, this is not, you know, retail. And and so once that relationship is built, then of course we do NDAs. I mean, we don't, we don't go use the restroom without an NDA in this company. I mean, it's just, it's like, that is the key to everything. Because if, if you can't feel 100% comfortable in, in talking freely, then the whole deal is going to go bad sooner or later. It's just a matter of time at that point. So once the NDAs are placed, okay, now we can begin to look at their P&Ls. We can begin to look at the valuation system. You know, what do they look like they're worth? And, and look, sometimes, and this is a lousy thing to say, sometimes I've had to talk to brokers and go, look, man, zero times three is still zero. I, there's nothing I can do for you. I wish I could. You know, your, your best option at this point is, to either sell for pennies on the dollar and get yourself out of whatever situation you're in or try and ride it out. And, and we can help you then maybe figure out a way to improve your revenue or, you know, cause we've got internal processes for them in those types of situations that will allow, we'll come in and help them and figure out a way to get some money. Okay, fine. And then once the valuation's done then we put the packages together and then we put it in front of our buyers, we have a, we have internal, we have a, an internal buyers network again, of all the big brands and, and a number of the large big brokerages as well. And they've all got, we have roughly 5 billion plus or minus in capitalization power that all these companies bring to our system that, you know, to put it into context, you know, if, if you're familiar with the real estate world, you probably heard of Compass. They had 300 million and that took them from basically no employees and no agents to in every state. And they had to use almost all of it. We've got 5 billion to work with in all of these companies that we're associated with. So, there's not too much we can't take on. You That's know? a lot of dry powder. Holy cow. That is a lot of dry powder. Yeah. I, I was trying to, we were internally, we were trying to figure out one time whether or not that was the most. And I don't know that it is or it isn't. And I won't make that prediction, but it's a, it's pretty far up there, you know, type of thing. So anyway, and then we put that package in front of the right people. And again, you know, we've got a lot of options. We've got a lot of sources. You're going to find, you know, maybe one fit doesn't work well, so we can work with a different fit or something along those lines. And then, then you work through negotiation, you work through, you know, what is everybody looking for? And you begin to just talk and figure out how does that work? What What is the broker who's selling? What is their long-term goal? Do they want to stay in the industry? Or do they want to leave immediately? That's going to that's gonna cause a different series of uh, possible solutions than, no, I'll stay for the next five years, something along those lines. But at that point, it's all just talking and, you know, one person wants one thing, one person wants another. The truth is in the middle. And, you know, that takes the time to to make all that happen. But that's the that's the simple process for that. It's a kind of a, you know, a slicked up version of it. But that's that's basically it. It's it's not terribly complex. It's tedious at times. And it's there's a lot of thought process that goes into what we do. But in the end, it's all pretty straightforward. Internally, I'll switch over to that real quick. Internally, my, you know, my people are good. Again, I wouldn't hire somebody who didn't have a lot of experience in the real estate industry. So teaching them maybe the the words maybe they don't have a ton of MA experience or something along those lines so that's just a matter of teaching them the language there's truly not a ton of difference between 
real estate and M&A. It's, it's a lot of the same similar types of, of procedures. You just got to teach the right language and you have to think in bigger terms. I mean, you know, a sale of a house might be 500,000, right? A sale of a, of an average company might be six or 7 million. It's a matter of scale. It's a matter of terms of, of size. And so you have to think in slightly different directions, but in the end, there's a lot of similarities and you just got to put the right person there and they'll, they'll get it. It doesn't take long. For this process that you obviously have pretty honed in, how often are you updating that? We, you know, we frequently think about, Hey, I figured a thing out and, and maybe you documented it. Maybe you didn't, but like, Hey, I got this process in whatever way it, it shaped. But over time, things change, things happen, sure. things adjust. How often are you then saying, hey, we need to we need to make this adjustment. We need to change how we're doing this uh, because it doesn't it doesn't give us the biggest bang for our buck anymore. Yeah, I'd say in the last, so let's say, four years or something like that, we've we've probably gone through maybe two really major iterations of, OK, this the way the steps aren't working quite correctly. And then I'd say maybe a half a dozen real small ones. And it was that was mostly just, you know, for example, for a while, we had an idea of, of putting the rapid valuation calculator just straight on our website. Just let people go do it, right? Okay, mm -hmm. fine. But there became some real interesting problems with that. I mean, you know, people didn't like suddenly putting their information on a website that they didn't know of, you know, whatever it was. And so we went, okay, that's not the way to do that. So we sort of reversed, you know, the NDA at that point became the primary focus first. Let's just get that out of the way. Get everybody, you know, sort of relaxed a little bit. And then suddenly... People would go, oh, yeah, I'm happy to give you my P&Ls or I'm happy to talk to you on a Zoom screen. So those were very minor changes by comparison. The big ones were a little more like, wow, we screwed that one up completely. Like, you, you, you mean you you can't tell someone that you want 10 million and you only want five or something like that? You know, there was those were a little different, but, you know, live and learn on those. So, so uh, you also mentioned, you know, unfortunately, sometimes owners come to you and say, I, you know, I want this amount. And you're like, yeah, you don't, you don't have that amount. Like, that's just not, that's just not in the cards, baby. Like, that's, yeah. that's what it is. But you then mentioned that, hey, how can we help you yeah. get that? Like, if that's what you want, like, it's not just about selling per se, like, hey, you got to grind it out if you want more. What are, what are some of those drivers to increase evaluation? Well, sure. I mean, but this is, you know, what you're talking about is literally just business 101. I mean, look, if you, mm -hmm. if you're not making a lot of profit, there's only one of two things you can do. You can cut your, you, you know, cut your expenditures. Or you can figure out a way to drive more more business to yourself and make more profit that way. Um, and that'll make your valuation go up. That's pretty much it. I mean, when you boil it all away, there's a lot of subtext to that. But when you boil it all away, the only way to make more money is those two things. Okay, fine. So what we do is go in and look at things like individually their tech stack, for example. Are they Maybe there's a way to reduce some costs there. Do, are they overinflated in, in maybe... I don't know, office computers or, you know, they're buying 63,000 cups of coffee a day or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in the brokerage world to to save on cost. They're a little bit more limited when it comes to maybe the the incoming revenue only because the market drives a lot of that. Right. In other words, a house is what a house is. And depending on how the broker's business model works. They may only get a fraction of a percentage of that sell of that house. So let's say that house was five hundred thousand dollars. Well, they may only the brokerage himself may only get a few grand. In some cases, the agent gets more than the broker does, mm -hmm. um, and so the broker has to figure out how to compensate for that. So maybe there's going to be things like desk fees, or maybe there's going to be transaction fees, or something like that that they have to begin to implement to try and make that brokerage a little more profitable. And it doesn't take much, you know, a few hundred dollars here and there can make a big difference in a brokerage, particularly a small one. And those are the things that we go in and we work with them on and we take a look at their business and we go, look, you're, you know, you're paying your secretary who basically pours coffee and, and answers phones for five hours a day. You're paying her a hundred thousand a year. Mm. Like that's crazy. I mean, and, you know, you don't want to be an ass about it, but at the same time, there's a reality. If you want to sell your business and you want to get out with anything, those are the choices you have to make. You know, you, you've got to go from being a small business and you want to be the good guy to this is a business. I have to make money particularly if I want to sell it because, you know, it's got to be worth something. Not a charity. It has to be profitable. So speaking of profitability, outside of profitability, what other drivers? So I'm going to assume that profitability is number one driver for uh, increasing valuations. Yeah. Would that be a good assumption? Yeah. Okay. So then what would be, let's say, two and three then? Well... I, I, yeah, I would probably reverse that. I mean, the money part of it, in some senses, is, is easy. Let's let's 
let's set aside an unprofitable company for an unprofitable brokerage for a moment. Let's say they're very profitable. Mm-hmm. The next biggest thing is, is culture. You, you do not want to be a buyer, for example, uh, and go buy a company and you suddenly realize the guy you just acquired, you hate his guts because you're stuck with him for the next two years. And that sucks, right? I mean, what do you do? I mean, legally and contractually, you're sort of in bed with this person, right? So we tend to focus a lot of our attention on the sell side because that's what we, we're good at. And we have a buyer's network, of course, but we tell the sellers, every one of our sellers, look, sooner or later, you need to meet the 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 guy who's going to buy you. And I say guy generically, not gender-wise. It's, it's so it's like, go have a drink, go have a cup of coffee, go have breakfast, whatever, but get to know them on a personal level. Cause again, the culture can be devastating. If you get the two cultures that just clash and whether that's agents who clash with the, in, you know, the new agents coming into an existing brokerage and clashing or the owners clashing, that can just be devastating. Again, what you're going to be left with is the husk of what was supposed to be a great deal. And, and it, nothing good will come of it. I, I've seen it too many times where two two brokers think this is going to be the greatest deal in the whole wide world, and then they're going to run off and you know fairies and rainbows and crying unicorns and the whole thing. And a week later, they're ready to kill each other. And it's like, wow, you guys didn't really think that one through. Great, you're all going to make an extra hundred thousand or two hundred or million dollars, but you know there's going to be a, you know a murder suicide by the time it's all done. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, you know, it goes back to happiness. You mentioned earlier, right? It's about it's yeah, about happy. It's about exactly. happiness at the end of the day. Exactly. If you have to hate yourself for two years, yes, yeah, that's and how much is that worth? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's not. And I, I have told, I have literally told customers, you need to walk away from this. I don't care what this is worth. You guys are going to kill each other. Like this is not. And and by and large, knock on wood, they've listened to me. And, and we've averted, you know, the Hindenburg, but it's still, it's just, it's tough sometimes. So I, so I think culture and, and, and probably the financial part of it are probably neck and neck. I might put culture just slightly ahead of financial because again, you know, financially, there's always ways to adjust and, and, and maybe find the gaps or find the holes. And then, and probably third, and, and this is so minor by comparison, is just things like geography, you know, right. So, I mean, if you're a buyer, and your objective is to, let's say, enter a new market that you're not in currently, you know, and you, I'll use Florida as the example. You know, if you want to be in Orlando and you want to open up a shop in Orlando and take over the Orlando market, well, you don't buy a brokerage that's in Palm Beach. Like that's 400 miles away. That doesn't make any sense. You know, like some, some of the people just don't think some of this stuff through all the way. And it's like, really? That, you know, you you've never been to Florida and you want to be in Orlando, but you bought in Miami, but explain to me how that's going to work for you, you know, type of thing, you know? So those are the little things. If you want to expand your market, you know, if you want to jump into a different market, you just, a lot of those small nuances can make a big difference. And that's why I think having a third party company, you know, like us makes a big difference because a, we remove all the emotion out of it, which is cool. But in the end, we can give little bits of information because we're all over the country. If you want to be in, I don't know, Sheboygan, like we can help you do that. And then we got to figure out, you know, what are the brokerages that are available? How does that work? What's going to be within your price range? You know, those are the subtleties that the week that a third party can really help out with. A lot of times brokers don't know where to start. The buyers maybe don't even know there's an option and the sellers don't know how to put themselves out there to begin with. No, that's, that makes sense. That's just, it seems it seems obvious, right? You're saying this seems obvious, but for obviously owners, they do this and and they do these mistakes, right? Like they have a I'm going to I'm going to Orlando. Well, you're actually going to Miami, but you're going to Orlando uh, yeah. in your brain. Well, it's in Florida, so that makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's not that big of a state. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> um, so uh, another question I had for you. So you you have this this all star team here. Processes get built. You got this culture going. You got this tech that's happening. How how do you make decisions for the future? Like you you went into Canada. Uh, that had to, there had to been some form of decision to to make that determination, uh, both operationally, market, all all those kind of factors. Yeah. How do you guys internally make decisions? Uh, yeah, that's again a really good question. So Canada was actually sort of thrust on us whether we liked it or not because some of the big brands we work with are also in Canada. Now, Canada, fortunately for us, has a very similar legal structure and, and a lot of subtle, a lot of similarities to the American market. So that was a pretty much a no-brainer. 
I've got some, what would we say? I've got some people pushing me to move into even, even like European markets and stuff like that. And like, that's just not in the cards right now. We've really got to, we've really, we've really got to just take you to the American and the Canada market right now. Europe's got its own set of problems. (laughs) I don't know how our brokerages are doing in Serbia right now or something like that. But anyway, yeah, some of the other ones are, are more nuanced. I mean, so for example, a lot of it is really dependent on where the big chunks of market are in play at any given time. So right now, and this is seeming to be true, when we sort of started this, our assumption was that it was going to start on the coast, sort of the sell-offs, if you will, and then it was going to work towards the middle. And that seems to be coming true. The south, the Sun Belt has stayed a little more consistent. Um, and so, you know, we sort of projected that just because of all the because of all the influx of immigration from the north. So, again, that wasn't a hard one to call. So a lot of where I started this was let's put our advisors on the outside fringes first. And then as I watched the market shift a little bit, I began to find some people who I knew I could would do a good job within those internal spheres. The other thing is, uh, for example, it takes a different type of personality to work with maybe some of the big brokerages. So when you get into, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million dollar brokerages, there's a lot of ego. I know those, and, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all. They've earned their ego, man. I mean, if you can build a company to, you know, getting up near 100 million plus, like you've earned it. And but that takes from an advisor point of view, just a different frame of mind. And some people could do it, no problem. And other people can't. And that's just the reality. So that was just that was a matter of looking at the market and saying, what what people do I think I have right now who could really talk to a person like that, you know, give them the confidence, create that relationship and then work through the steps at even a bigger scale than maybe what an average deal might go for. You know, little things like that. There's, again, there's a lot of nuance to this game and it's, uh, you just gotta be, gotta keep your eyes open, your head moving all the time to, to just see it. Is there any big differences or is there a shift where, you know, let's say looking at brokerages, if all, if all of the things are equal, is there a size range where all of a sudden the valuations are higher or does it stay, you know, let's say multipliers or otherwise, is it, does it stay roughly equal? Let's say from a million, you know, yeah. So I, I think the best way to think of it is in these terms, once you crack a certain dollar value, let's, let's say we've got a company that's worth, I don't know, 10 million. All right. So we do the valuation. We say you're worth about 10 million plus or minus. And they're going to have something like, 500 agents, they're probably doing something close to a billion a year in transaction sales, stuff like that. They can command a bit more of a premium, whereas the smaller brokerages couldn't. You know, if, if a small brokerage came to me and I said, okay, you're in, I don't know, Arkansas, and the multiplier says, you know, you're worth a two, I don't know, whatever it is, 255 or whatever it is right now. I don't know that I could really say to that broker, you know, based on your size, I could command a premium of a 305 or and we'll go up another half a point, which would actually equal some some significant money. But mm-hmm. I don't know at that size that we could realistically demand that premium. Once you get into those big numbers, a broker could come to us and say, look, I, you know, 255, even if I'm in Arkansas, if I'm doing a billion and a half a year in transaction sales, sorry, it's 255 ain't going to cut it. I, I want a 30 or I even maybe want a 35. And, but we've got that flexibility. So there, there is a sort of delineation, let's call it, between smaller brokerages, which account for the vast majority, and those larger brokerages that, that are maybe thinking about coming on the market. It's a it's good insight. Uh, totally makes sense to me. Obviously, larger you are, you obviously develop some innovation. You've, despite yeah. this being one of the oldest sort of oh. marketplaces in the, uh, really in the world, right? buying and selling land, yeah. there's obviously still innovation that's happening there. So very cool. All right. We always love ask, asking this question. So I I think you'll have a, a great answer. So if you go no back pressure. in time. No yeah, pressure. I wasn't say not at all. Uh, if you go back in time 20 years, what would you tell yourself? Oh, man, that is a good one. Wow, you're making me think on that. What would I go back and tell myself? Um, That's 2003, by the way, if that is helpful. Old school came out that year. Okay, well, first of all, that's about 10,000 gin and tonics ago. So we're going to we're going to have to get fight through that battle. Um, What would I tell myself? (laughs) Wow. 2003, I would have been in college then. Man, that's a good one. You got me kind of I got to think about that one for half a second. You know, I think 
think the best way I can think to say this would be something like this is there were a few times in my life where I, I look back and wished that I would have muscled through a particular something that was blocking me. And, and I didn't, and I should have. And so I, I think maybe if I could go back and say it again is, you know, be even a little more resilient than, than maybe it seemed like at the time I didn't think I could push my way through. And, and, and I'm not saying that like, it wasn't like death and mayhem or destruction or anything. I mean, I eventually got to the point where I wanted, but it took longer and there was a little bit more pain that went along with it. Whereas if I had just pushed through at one little thing, I, I think I probably would have been a little easier. So yeah, I think just a little more resilience when it really matters the most. I mean, as a small business owner, you got to be pretty resilient anyway. But there have been, you know, every business, small business owner goes through even tougher times than maybe is average. And those are the times where you really hunker down and just go, look, I'm on a path and I know where I'm going and I've got to get there. And this sucks, but I got to do it. And no matter what. So I love the insight. I'm. You know, thank you for your authenticity. Uh, loved hearing that answer. So resilience, grit. I mean, those are all definitely uh, those are definitely features of an uh, of an entrepreneur. So thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, appreciate it. I'm I'm building my son to be an entrepreneur uh, because anytime he like gets struggles with something, he's like it's too hard or whatever. And I say uh, when things get hard, what do we do? Try harder. Like, yeah. so it's like, it's one of those things. How can I instill this at a three-year-old except it's... when he tells me it and then yeah. I'll be like fixing something <laughs> like that. What are you doing? And I'm yeah. like, Oh, I'm fixing the faucet. And he's like, you should try harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it comes back and bites you and you go, really? Crap. All, All right. right. Yeah, no. And I, but I, but I then appreciate it. Cause I'm like, yes, yes, you're right. Yeah. I should try harder. Absolutely. I love that. What's that? So, What's uh, that? That old Madagascar quote, what is it? Uh, grit spit and a whole lot of duct tape. Yep, <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Uh, this was awesome. We're going to throw all the social media, all that kind of stuff in the show notes. No problem there. If uh, people wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that, Mark? Rema, R-E-M-A dot global. That's our website. And 941-350-6745 if they want to get a hold of me directly. Wow, that's awesome. That's so great. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and I hope our listeners had as much fun as we did. Uh, and until next time, adios. Adios. Thanks for listening to Building Scale. To help us reach even more people, please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or on social media. Remember, the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. And our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. So if you think your company's technology pillar could use some improvement, book a call with us to see how we can help maximize your IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. And until next time, keep, keep building, building scale. scale. <laughs>